This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. It's very nice to be back here with this group. I always like to be invited. I come once or twice a year, so it's very sweet to be with all of you. What I wanted to talk about tonight was the role of faith and wisdom and the cultivation of faith and wisdom in the path of practice. And one of the things that I find really helpful when I'm listening to a talk or or even giving a, a talk is when it's relevant to my own experience or to the experience that I imagine you all might be having, then it becomes a little bit more uh, juicy and, and real. So I would like you to, during the talk, feel absolutely free to raise your hand and ask me a question if there's any questions, and if I can answer them, I will, but also to sort of check in with yourself and see how you're receiving the talk. Just see what your reaction is to what's being said, what your attitude about it might be, and so on and so forth. It's so often we think that when we are meditators that we're going to sit down and we're going to have this experience of meditation and um, it's going to open up all sorts of wonderful insights to us. And oftentimes that does happen. But many times meditation can be, uh, the, the meditative experience can be, I don't want to say mundane, but it can seem ordinary. And then there can be a kind of automatic judgment like, nothing's really happening here, or what I thought I understood I didn't really understand, and therefore, what am I doing here, just sitting here gazing at my navel? So something that has been very useful for me is to notice during the meditation and then notice when you're not in a formal sitting meditation the nuances of the ebb and flow of awareness as it engages me. So to be more specific, we, we came in tonight and we sat down and we brought the energy of the day with us. We all have busy lives, no doubt. And so we came in and we were chatting with friends and greeting one another, and it's all a very normal thing to do, and so a wonderful, lovely thing to do. And then we sit down, and we start to just notice that we're breathing. And then the mind wanders, and then we come back to it, and then we notice you know, that we're grounded in the body, and then the mind wanders, and then we, we come back. We just keep coming back over and over again, to the degree to the degree that we're able to so that's one aspect of the experience the other aspect is to notice the nuances of 
the nuances of our experience of awareness when we notice that we're thinking and then we notice that we're following the breath. You see? This is something to actually cultivate where you bring your attention not only to the breath but to the feeling of what it's like to be noticing the breath. And when the mind wanders and, and then we at some point realize that we're thinking, you see, instead of like thinking, instead of beating ourselves up, I mean, I know you've all heard this a million times, but it's worth repeating. Instead of like getting lost in a judgment or an attitude about the fact that the mind has left the breath, we can know that the mind has left the breath. We can know that thinking is occurring. And we can also know what it feels like almost energetically or what the awareness, what our awareness feels like when we're thinking, when we're in a mental state rather than in a a calm state just following the breath in the body. Does this make sense? There's different ways to be with our experience. And so this is very useful in terms of our practice because it begins to we begin to cultivate the ability to recognize when certain emotions or mind states or you know uh, certain patterns of thinking are arising and ex- and and sort of unfolding so The idea here is if we know what's going on, if our mindfulness is bright enough to recognize what is actually going on in our experience, we really don't have to fight with it because it's a completely different thing to be lost in thought than it is to know your thinking. Does that, does that resonate? Yeah. Can you feel the difference almost? When you're lost in thought, you're just lost. But when you know that thinking is occurring, there's a kind of awareness that changes the whole game. So... Let's shift to emotions. And let's say you're angry. Anger comes up. When we're lost in anger, we have just gone over the cliff. We're just lost. (laughs) Furious. Whatever. But when we know that anger has arisen, even though we might be feeling the sting of anger, and even though we might not catch it in time to actually prevent us from, like, doing or saying something stupid. The fact is that once we know anger is there, there's the momentum of the anger that has gripped us has been broken. It's been broken. It's like in the middle of something, you can stop and take a breath. You can just stop and pause and take a breath. And that doesn't solve the problem. 
the problem or the challenge that we might be facing, but it breaks the momentum of the, of the force of the habit that we are beginning to, you know, sort of succumb to. So what happens is that these things, these things, these experiences have a repetitive nature to them. And even though we don't like to think of it in this way, there are habits. There are habits, our default habits. So we, if we're prone to anger, we default to anger. It's a habit. We default to it. If we're prone to depression and something triggers us, we, we'll just go to depression until we know what's happening. So it's really helpful to have a strong motivation to reflect on the Dhamma and to res- recognize that there's refuge, that there's real refuge to be found in the perception of truth or the way things are. To see things clearly for what they are is an actual refuge for us. And a lot of people, I, I, I've discovered this in teaching this compassion program, a lot of people don't have any idea what a real refuge is. They don't have they just haven't found a refuge in their life. And it's not that there isn't a refuge, they just haven't come across it yet. So the refuge that I'm talking about here is to see the way things are. This is wisdom. And in order to see the way things are, we have to cultivate this quality of mindfulness. So we spend a lot of time hoping or trying to find ways that we can sort of diminish or lessen or in some way get away from our suffering, right? And, you know, there's books written about it and people give lectures and people do courses on it. But the fact is, the Buddha pointed out that suffering is the baseline of all phenomenal experience. Now, that is not to say that the Buddha taught that life is nothing but suffering. What the Buddha taught was that there is suffering in life. And when we invest our hopes, our dreams, our preferences, our expectations, and so on and so forth, in that which is unstable and ever-changing and inherently devoid of any kind of abiding self, we're bound to suffer. That's all there is to it. We are bound to suffer. And when we don't know what's happening in our experience, we are also bound to suffer because we, don't, we can't see the patterns that have caught us or that you know, we've taken upon ourselves and turned into habit, habits. And therefore, we repeat the same things over and over and over again like gerbil on one of those spinning wheels. And so the fact that dukkha or suffering is the ba- is, is the baseline for, for all phenomena, for all experience, 
this is something that, you know, a mind that's untrained does not want to accept. It's just like we don't want to deal with that. You know, so part of this practice, this beautiful practice, this practice that's a real refuge, is to recognize that the mind is not trained, is not disciplined, and to rejoice in the fact that it can be trained. There's a possibility to train the mind. And so all the different meditation techniques that were given, follow the breath, scan the body, say the loving kindness phrases, you know, look for the elements, look for the 32 parts of the body and go down the whole list of all of these different things. These are basically methods to quiet the mind down long enough for us to penetrate through the habits that keep us distant and resisting our direct experience. And this is something that I teach in my compassion course, um, that when we resist experience, when we resist what's really going on for us, we try to hide from it, or we try to confront it, or we try in a million different ways to do anything except to be with it. You see, we are at that very moment, abandoning ourselves. We are leaving ourselves in a vulnerable and scary place. So you can imagine being a small child. Just think back to some experience you had in childhood. And you might have been on the playground at school. You might have been, you know, on a family picnic. And somebody did something and, or you did something and somebody said something. And all of a sudden, there was no more safety in your world. And you didn't know what to do. And there was no one there to catch you or to protect you. And you just felt overwhelmed. And so as a child, we come up with different strategies to deal with that. But that moment of overwhelm, that moment of, like, I don't know what to call it. There's an actual word for it that the Tibetans use. And... I'm pretty sure the word is shinpa, S-H-E-N-P-A. It's that place of knowing something, of experiencing something that's almost pre-verbal. And, and what happens is this thing gets triggered, sometimes in response to something that's scaring us or challenging us. It might be a response to something that's really lovely or something. But what happens is that we resist being with it, especially if it's scary, and we start to, the mind immediately starts to analyze or to starts to cognize that we're in a red zone, danger, 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 get away. We start to explain to ourselves what this feeling is. And so 
the more we do that, the more we remove ourselves from the direct experience of this feeling. Let's just call it a feeling, you see? And then we build, build all sorts of stories. Basically, the expression, uh, we make a mountain out of a mohill. And the mind spins off into what in like Buddhist practice is called papancha, but it's really mental proliferation. The mind begins to proliferate over and over and over again. You know, something happens, this means that person thinks that, and this means the world's going to, you know, take a turn, I'm going to lose my job, and my wife is going to leave me, and etc. Cetera, et cetera. Pretty soon, the world is coming to the end. end. And we're so far away from that experience, which if we begin to train ourselves how to be with the ebb and flow of the awareness of what's actually happening, we can see that that experience is a dynamic unfolding. It's not stable. It's simply unfolding. We can begin to recognize that. So I want to come back to the reason why it's so important to, be, to begin to try to notice these shifts in awareness, the ebb and flow in awareness. And we can see that the actual feeling that we have that, that might have been triggered by something that someone said or something is not the problem. This is not the suffering the suffering is all of the layers that we put between us and that f- feeling. And the problem is that we have abandoned ourselves. And so we end up feeling like that little child in the playground that doesn't know what to do. And so now we're adults. And now when we get angry, we can really cause harm. We can say things that are really mean. And we can do things that are really unskillful. You see? And so, and it's a response to the fact that we've abandoned ourselves and that we're frightened. Does this make sense? Yeah. Now, this takes compassion to be with. It really takes the ability to see clearly what's going on and not abandon ourselves. So if you'd never come to the compassion course, you just I just gave it to you. I just gave it to you. Compassion can hold the cries of the world without giving up your seat. You can hold it. It requires fierce strength. It's not wishy-washy or weak at all. It requires real courage. So... I want to go back here a little bit because the way that we can begin to do this, actually, the Buddha has given us these instructions 2,600 years ago. But he says, the Buddha teaches that the end of dukkha comes not from denying or escaping our experience, but rather from turning towards it and, and, and tuning into it, turn, turning right into it, into the direct experience of whatever is up, whether it's 
something that we don't like, whether it's a dissatisfaction, a discomfort, or whatever, but to turn towards it. Now, if it's really something big, that's not easy to do. That is not easy to do. And I want to caution everyone in the room tonight that I'm not suggesting that you take the gorilla in your closet and deal with that immediately. But you can begin to look at little things that are troubling you. You can begin to look at, you know, things that are like irritations for you. Or you can begin to look at um, what it's like when, when you're trying to escape something and you get up and you go to the refrigerator and you're, you know, looking for something to eat or something to drink. It's just as a distraction. So it's not the eating and drinking that's the problem. It's that we're not seeing what we're avoiding here. So we need to like take a, begin to take a look at that. So when we begin to do this, it stretches the heart and it really gives rise to this beautiful spiritual quality of compassion. I'm a compassion junkie, so you have to take, take what I'm saying with a little bit of, but when one cultivates compassion, they cultivate the ability to be with their experience of dukkha or of suffering at deeper and deeper levels. They begin to cultivate the ability to be with themselves as a true friend and not to desert themselves. And most people in the West sort of get what it's like to offer compassion to other people, but they don't even have a clue that they're not, that they're sort of withholding it from themselves. And ask me how I know that. (laughs) You have a question. I'm not an expert, but I will respond to that and Maybe it will be helpful and maybe it won't. If when you find yourself being drawn into the experience and that's the truth of your experience, you're being drawn into it, then rather than trying to be with the experience, you can notice what it's like to be drawn into. You can let your mindfulness notice that you're being drawn into it And you can notice the attitude that you might have about being drawn into it. So this is a practice called citta-nupasana, mindfulness of mind. You're simply watching what's happening as it unfolds, and you're not rejecting anything at all in your experience. It's a beautiful way to practice. So you don't have to reject anything. You just continue to look at, oh, that's what's happening now. This is what's happening now. And a way that you can do this, a a way that you can practice like that, is at any moment you can just posit the question, what is being known right now? So if I heard you right, you're trying to go into the experience, you're trying to turn to the experience, but you find yourself being drawn back into it. Right? Did I get it right? That's what's happening right now. And so 
when you recognize that's what's happening, then there's a little bit of space, perhaps, to notice, whoa, what's my attitude about being drawn in? Is this frustrating me? Is this making me feel vulnerable? Is this making me feel helpless? Is this making me feel X, Y, Z? And you may discover in, in a process like that that there's some suffering associated with that, being drawn back in and being frustrated or being whatever. And this, when you actually... When a person, I don't want to put this in a personal way, but when we see that suffering directly as part of our experience, then the heart naturally, just naturally opens with compassion. And I want to suggest that compassion doesn't always have that quivering heart quality that people recognize. See, sometimes it's simply known through the direct seeing of suffering. So there are many people in this room, and you all have a a way of accessing compassion. You all have a way of accessing mindfulness. Everybody is different, you see. Some people, like me, tend to be more mental. So I will think myself to death and... And therefore, I'm, I miss what's actually happening. So I have to, but I also have to allow myself, I have to allow the fact that this is my temperament. This is the way that I approach things. And to recognize when compassion has arisen through what I call the wisdom door. And so... It doesn't have the quivering heart quality that I associate with certain kinds of compassionate responses, but it has a quality of relinquishment and release. So in in this case, I'm sorry to to use you as an example, but it's a a great thing. In, In this case, it might be the release from the judgment and the frustration that's causing you to suffer. But you see, if you can see that, then you are being with your experience directly. It's just not the experience that you thought you were being with. So the, the Dhamma has a way of giving us exactly what we need. And sometimes it's not what we're expecting. It's, it comes as a surprise, the way it unfolds, but that's how it can happen. And this is a perfect example of how, as meditators, I, I shouldn't presume that you're all like me, <clears throat> but you know, I used to think that if I just meditate, I can meditate myself into happiness and safety and bliss and insights and so on and so forth. And that's a perfectly legitimate way to do it. However, I also thought that I needed to chain myself to the cushion, that it would never happen unless I was like literally chained. And so I would go off and I would do these retreats that would go three, four, five months, a year at a time. And they were wonderful. But what I learned was that 
the experience on the cushion isn't relevant if it doesn't make sense and pan out in my day-to-day life. And my experience in day-to-day life can be clarified on the cushion. And so the very ordinary experience that we have by just like doing something like this, you weren't sitting in formal meditation when you did it. If you just begin to unpack it, it's like a profound deep meditation. Does this make sense? I really want to uh, encourage everyone to recognize the value of your experience and the access to wisdom that comes from your experience when you stop taking it for granted. I was having a conversation with someone at lunch today and um, their father is old now and he's, he's in hospice, he's dying. And he must have been a real firecracker when he was younger. And he did a lot of mean things to his kids, apparently. And so I'm having lunch with his son, and his, his son is like becoming the caretaker for him because the other siblings have like, they don't want much to do with the old guy. And, and so he's now in some sort of an assisted living situation, and his, his son went to see him. And he's been struggling with this, something so simple. He's been struggling with giving his father a hug, with hugging his father, because he's still so angry at some level at his dad. And he realizes his dad's not doing anything. This is his stuff that he's just been carrying around, and he hasn't been able to process it or forgive himself or forgive his father or whatever. It's his stuff. And so he went to see his dad, and they were his dad was telling him World War II stories, and they did all the things that the father talks about, and he listened patiently. And then as he was getting ready to go, he, was, he said he just was watching himself try to talk himself out of hugging his father. He was really trying to talk himself out of it. And he said something happened, and he just decided to kneel down in front of his dad. And he looked at his father, and he said, I think I'd like to hug you. Would that be okay? And his father just looked at him. And they reached out and hugged one another. And it was this moment of absolute connection and forgiveness. It wasn't like what happened never happened, but it was like it was no longer blocking them. And, and then he just got up and left. And then he called his dad a day or two later, and his father said, I just have to tell you that that meant so much to me, more than anything, and I will take that hug to my grave with me. Now, imagine if he had actually talked himself out of giving his father that hug. And then he left, and he got a call that his father died when he arrived home. You see? So we just take our lives for granted, but we 
we shouldn't take our lives for granted. I mean, we know that we shouldn't take our lives for granted, but we do. So every moment is an opportunity to awaken. Every moment is an opportunity to see what's happening and to respond to what's happening to the degree that we can with kindness. You know, we know how to live and we know how to be a friend to someone else we just have to learn how to be a friend to ourselves. Is that right? Something like that. And, you know, when we cultivate this ability to be with our experience, um, it really does satisfy us, and it fills us with a kind of gratitude, and it, it makes us feel whole and complete. It makes us feel connected, not only to other people, but to ourselves. We're not, we don't desert ourselves. We don't like bolt. We don't ignore what's really happening for us. So in this particular practice that we do here, it's natural to not want to be with dukkha. It's natural for us. Who wants to be with suffering? But actually, it's an aspect of truth that when we cultivate our ability to recognize it and to be with it, we actually cultivate our access to insight and to wisdom. And this requires faith. It really does require faith. So... The Buddha taught that there are two ways the Dhamma is expressed. And those two ways are the way of truth, the wisdom, what's actually there, what's actually happening, seeing things very clearly, and then the way of practice. So if we reflect on his Four Noble Truths, he tells us that there is suffering, that there's a cause of suffering, There's the possibility for suffering to end, to cease, and there's a path leading to the end of suffering. And so the truth is to see that there is dukkha, that there is this quality, and that it's inherent in all phenomenal experience. In the arising and passing away of all experience, there's this unsatisfactory nature that can be a minor something to a major over, overload. And then the way of practice is basically the Noble Eightfold Path. It's how to practice with things as they are and come to a place where we have some sort of access to a peaceful, calm experience, to, uh, to peace and joy. So the way of practice, as I said, is the Noble Eightfold Path, and it's grounded in qualities that lead to like a brightness in the mind and clarity and calmness and stillness and happiness, all these beautiful qualities that we want. But 
it's a path of practice and it's a gradual unfolding. It's not something that we just, someone gives a talk or we pick up a book and we read about it or we go to a day long and then we get it. It's a gradual practice. We have to keep going back over and over, honestly, authentically, to what our actual experience is. And we have to cultivate and discipline the mind to stay with the experience and not to leave us in the lurch, not to abandon ourselves. So dukkha is the truth of the way things are, and, and the path of practice is the way to apply wisdom to overcome dukkha. So in this case, we can spend all our time striving to so we notice this, but we can spend all of our time like trying to cultivate and perfect spiritual qualities, and we just keep ourselves busy doing this. But this busyness, this drive, this OCD kind of <laughs> approach, literally, it, it doesn't allow us to touch the heart of liberation. It's, it's a distraction. And we have to be able to see what we're doing. So in my own practice, I've often used that. You know, I've practiced fairly deeply and I have years of meditation. And so when things would occur for me, I would often try to meditate my issues away. You know, I think they call that a spiritual bypass. But, you know, sometimes that worked for a while, but it didn't really get to the core of what my experience was. And these things would come back, and they just come up over and over again. And they present themselves when I least expect them, when they're least, you know, convenient somehow. And, and so there's a lesson to be learned there. There's, there's something to be seen in that. And for me, what I did was I rejected the potential possibility that my experience in my day-to-day life had any spiritual significance. It was like I... I I was bifurcated. I separated practice life from daily life. And I, I felt that if I p- spent too much time in daily life, I would forfeit my practice. And then when I spent all my time practicing, you know, it was like it, it didn't solve my issue in daily life at all. Yes? Do you think that's a product of the mind? Kind of cubby-holding things? You know, like separating things. Don't you think it's a product of the way we think about things? To the way we separate spirituality from everyday anything. Mm-hmm. You know that we are spiritual people, and that everything is in terms of spiritual people has power. But when we separate it out, we're dealing it with it, we're getting to know it. We think, mm-hmm. but it seems to be have less power than. I was going to ask you uh, that in psychology, people come up with a lot of diagnosis about things. But I noticed in people when they really changed, 
They left the diagnosis and started practicing some of these principles. Some what? Some of these principles. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, I was thinking about a friend right now, and uh, the general practice is they get frustrated, they go into a rage, and then look for a diagnosis. Right. This is why she's behaving the way she is. You know, right. I used to do that. Sure, we all do. Yeah. And is it, is it, can you be brave enough to step out of that and practice this and think that it's going to go someplace? Well, I, yes, the answer to that, I think, is yes. That I do know the answer to, and I'm willing to say yes. It's also very natural for us to compartmentalize. You know, we do this without even thinking. It happens automatically. We also, um, you know, one of the ways that we compartmentalize is that we have a group that we identify with and, and think we belong to, and then there's another group that, that, you know, we put in another category and another group and another category and another group and another category, and depending on which category people are in, you know, it's easier for us to relate to them or it's easier for us to be angry with them or distant from them or to not be able to feel much compassion for them or those types. It's, it's a completely normal thing. Again, this is a gradual process. It's very much like the woman in the back who asked me the question. So we notice that we're compartmentalizing. Instead of trying to stop compartmentalizing, the real opportunity is to notice what it feels like when we compartmentalize, to notice what the mind is serving up, to notice the attitudes that we have about it. You see, this is ordinary, everyday life that leads to profound, deep insight if we begin to train ourselves to track in that way. Does that answer somewhat? Good. Okay. So to the degree that it's possible for us, we need to see that things really are impermanent, that they're really unsatisfactory, that there's no stability to them, and that there's really no abiding self to be had. You see, we're angry. We think we're angry. The anger's gone. And are we gone? There's, it's, it was anger. You know, we're happy. <laughs> the happiness passes. <laughs> where are, where, there's no abiding self in that way. So an appropriate response to the fact that this is true is one of compassion, is one of caring and patient diligence and a willingness to practice with these things and to practice with them sort of based on and f on a foundation of cultivating wholesome qualities. And this is where faith comes in, you see? Like, why should we, you not kill? Why should you not steal? Why should you not slander and lie? Why should you not, like, you know, drink yourself into a state where you don't know what's happening? Why should you go out and harm other people or yourself with your sexuality? Why shouldn't you, you see? 
Well, when you begin to practice these wholesome qualities, these are the precepts. When you begin to practice these precepts and actually take them seriously, you can begin to see that these practices build up discipline, they build up insight, they build up caring, kindness, consideration, and they give us room to quiet down enough so that the mind isn't constantly disturbed. So we come to meditation and we sit down and, you know, we meet the mind that we meet. But if we're leading a life that's undisciplined and unethical and not rooted in integrity, the mind that we sit down with is going to be an agitated mind. And when we think and expect it to be calm and peaceful and blissful, and it's not, it's only going to make us more agitated. So all of these things work together. <laughs> I always make these notes and then I run. <laughs> I, I, I can never get to the finish, to the end of my talk. <laughs> I'm trying. It seems like there's too many nice, ju juicy things to say. So, so maybe I'll, I'll just wrap this up by saying, you know, truth, the way things are, and practice, the path of practice, the Noble Eightfold Path, they need to inform and support one another, you see? And to be, to be able to see things as they are requires compassion. It does, because there are gorillas in our closets, and there are little things that have just turned into such habits that, you know, we just spout off because someone gets in front of us and we're in a hurry and they're not moving quickly enough, you see. So these things need to inform and support one another for the path of freedom to flower and fruit. And that's what we're practicing here. We're practicing how to recognize what is skillful and what isn't skillful. And in the process, we might actually have some moments of freedom. We might have some moments where we actually, something happens and we get out of the way and we just connect in a way where we feel whole. It might happen with another person or it might happen within ourselves. And it might just be a moment, a second or two. But that moment of knowing is a moment of luminosity. It's a moment of hope and it's a moment of truth. And everyone that's sitting in this room has connected with that luminosity within themselves at some point or another, or they wouldn't be coming to places like this to practice. You wouldn't be coming. So my wish and my hope for you is that you don't take that luminosity inside of you, that urge, desire, that stirring to awaken, to be happy and safe and to live in integrity and harmony with yourself and with other people, that you don't take it for granted, that you don't walk out 
of your life without giving yourself a hug because you might not get another chance. I have a friend. (laughs) Well, he's obviously not Buddhist, but he says, you only go around once and it's not a dress rehearsal. (laughs) I like this. You only go around once and it's not a dress rehearsal. So for goodness sakes, pay attention. And you can pay attention in this most ordinary, most extraordinary of ordinary ways by simply noticing the nuances when you sit down to meditate and you're still sort of, not, not rattled, but you know, you, you bring the energy of the day to your seat and then just check in with how you feel after you've been sitting for a while. You know, you might not be in deep, concentrated samadhi, but there'll be a difference. You'll notice, and you'll be able to notice sitting, sitting here. I'm just sitting here. I don't have to do anything to know I'm sitting here. You see? The mystery and the blessing of being able to know that we're sitting, of being able to know that we have breath. I mean, this is a gift. So... May you all know that you're sitting, and may you all know that you're breathing. Thank you for having me here. It's been a pleasure. So so whatever goodness or merit we might have generated by um, practicing together and and listening to the Dhamma, uh, may you take that with you tonight and share it with those who you come in contact with. Share it with your family. Share it with your colleagues at work tomorrow or in your relationships. And may it spread out over the world. And may the luminosity within you shine brightly. So, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.